years. So I'm Jane Wolf, and uh, this is a one-hour drive-by presentation on called Double Knowledge, and um, uh, it real this topic really deserves more than one hour. Um, and so in this presentation, I'm going to be relying very heavily on this book, The Gift of Being Yourself by David Benner. And I would really encourage you that if what you hear piques your curiosity or you sense that God's Spirit says this is something you need to know about, I really encourage you uh, to go online and pick it up. There's used copies, there's new ones, and it's not a particularly expensive book. The Gift of Being Yourself. And the author again. David Benner. Benner. Mm -hmm. It's um, the subtitle is The Sacred Call to Self-Discovery. When I have, as I have many times, sat in your seat and listened to someone speak. I am always kind of curious as to who in the world is this that's talking to me and why and I'm listening. And since I truly don't know most of you, I will uh, take a few of the precious moments we have out of this hour just to tell you a little bit about myself. And um, I'll start with my family. I have four married adult children, and between all of them, they have given me 11 grandchildren. And I am most fortunate that two of those children live in the area and two others live in Colorado. So um, my family is very, very important to me. Um, this evening we have a big deal at our house because my, uh, my oldest son's wife, who is from the Philippines, is headed home to the Philippines for the first time since she moved to the United States a couple years ago. So we're having a party tonight to give their little one things to do on the 18-hour plane, plane ride. <laughs> and uh, so that's, that's this evening. And um, some of you may know that I was on the pastoral staff at Salem Alliance Church um, up until when I retired three and a half years ago. I was the... Uh, I was the founder and director of LifePath and had 23 of the best years of my life there. And um, although I know I did what I, it was time to do to retire, um, that is, I have only fond memories of those 23 wonderful years of working with the wonderful people in LifePath and of uh, Salem Alliance Church. Uh, before that, um, and see, when you get as old as me, you keep going back. You have a whole bunch of chapters. Uh, before I um, directed LifePath, um, I was a counselor in private practice. And I did that. And then before I did that, I uh, got to be, I had been a, had the privilege of being a stay-at-home mom for quite a few years. And before that, as I said, it keeps going back. Uh, before that, I was a um, public school teacher. And um, so that tells you a little bit about where I'm coming from. And um, my husband and I this summer have done the big downsize move uh, from moving from our large home on six and a half acres 
and my husband was tired of taking care of six and a half acres. He said it wasn't fun anymore. <laughs> and so uh, people laughed because we now have eight-tenths of an acre, uh, which obviously isn't just go out and mow your lawn, but, um, and we have a delightful creek that runs through our backyard. And I have all kinds of space for flowers because I'm a very avid gardener. And uh, I can hardly wait for <laughs> spring to get here. And I have a little, um, I have a little, um, there's probably a real word for this, a little portable, little put, take out and put down greenhouse. And it is now erected in my backyard. And uh, it has got stuff that is growing in it. And um, one of the things that gardening, gardening has taught me a lot. And uh, if you're in life path, you heard a lot about growing things because I talked about it a lot. But uh, growing things takes a long time. Uh, you plant seeds, and seeds are little tiny things. And very often they're kind of weird looking little things. And you put them in the ground and you can't even see them. And then they start to grow. And you have to take care of them. And uh, it's very much like our lives. Very often what grow, what is planted, looked kind of weird and kind of went underground for a while. And then um, life comes that we have nothing to do with. I can take care of the seed, but I can't make it grow. And that's so true of our lives. Um, today, I'm going to be talking about double knowledge. Oh, you see, the one thing I didn't tell you is, so what do I do today? Um, not too long ago, I walked into World Market up in Kaiser. And there was a great big, you know, one of those Papasan chairs, those big round things. And there's this guy sitting there just like this. <laughs> and I walk by, and I don't know who this guy is, and another person walks in who knows him. And I don't remember what his name was, but let's say his name was Joe. And this guy goes, Joe, what are you doing? Goes, nothing. <laughs> so what do you mean, nothing? He said, I'm retired, and I get to spend the rest of my life doing nothing. That's why I'm here. And I thought, oh, help me. That's not what I want to do. <clears throat> and uh, so today, I get to spend a lot of time taking care of a little one that I didn't expect to have, a little two-and-a-half-year-old. And I get to love my other grandchildren. I get to, uh, we moved, we, and we not only moved, we remodeled. Um, that means I didn't learn very much in life that at this point. <laughs> I didn't. Um, and, um, and I have a small spiritual directing practice. And so uh, that is the love of my life. <clears throat> but I am plenty, plenty busy, and I love where I am. And so speaking to you today is um, something I've, I've, I'm back at. Um, I used to, before I was uh, on staff here, I used to do a lot of speaking at various different church retreats around the Northwest. Came to a point where I said, I don't think that's what God has for me anymore. I'm not going to do it. I want to know my audience. I want to know my audience, and I want to work from week to week with people. Uh, I like taking care of seeds, not just um, 
whatever. I don't just like sticking them in the ground. I want to stay and I want to watch them grow. And so I really pulled back and um, really believe it was the right thing to do. So being back here today is a real test of uh, saying, okay, I'll give it a shot. We'll see. I really don't know my audience. And so this is a really interesting little experiment between me and God today. And so we'll see how it goes. Uh, anytime um, I talk about double knowledge, which I, I do, and say something to an audience like, um, if uh, I want to know God, then I'll need to know myself. And if I want to know myself, I'm going to need to know God. I can feel myself inside um, wanting to be able to say two things at one time to my audience. Because I imagine what you're thinking. And I imagine you thinking, why would there be a seminary on self-discovery be presented to people who are attempting to follow the self-sacrificing Jesus, particularly to present this at the beginning of Lent? I want to control your thoughts that might be thinking, oh no, a shrink. I got into the wrong <laughs> seminar, and the seminar doesn't take seriously that it's in losing ourselves that we find ourselves. Or maybe worse, you might be thinking, oh, this is going to be that psychobabble stuff. Self-discovery, self-identity, authenticity, and I just want to go, oh, please, just, just hang in there, just hang in there, well, we're, it's going to be okay. And of course, what I'm saying to myself is telling myself about myself, right? It's telling me, oh, Jane, you are still so insecure. You, uh, you want to control it all so that everybody just thinks just like you do and nobody thinks anything that you don't want them to think. I think all our lives we keep learning about ourselves. We keep seeing ourselves if we have our eyes open. And to get more complex, I do believe that those self-discovery, identity, and authenticity each have a very important part to play in the transformational journey of Christian spirituality. There's simply no question in my mind and heart but that finding our true self in Jesus Christ and growing roots deep into that reality is a very different concept than that of the goal of self-fulfillment of pop psychology. Christian spirituality has a great deal to do with the self, and not just with God. After all, the goal of mature Christian life is transformation, not perfection, but transformation of myself. And this is going to require knowing both God and myself. Both are necessary because it's within myself that I come to meet and then to know God. In all of creation, knowing who I am is a challenge and a goal only for us humans. Everything else knows what it is, and it isn't tempted to be something it isn't. Tulips are tulips, rocks are rocks, dogs are dogs, trees are trees, and so on. In being who God made them to be, they reflect the glory of God. And we too reflect the glory of God when we are 
who God made us to be. But herein is part of the problem. We have to know who we are. We have thousands of possibilities out of which to construct or form ourselves or what we call an identity. We think, we look at options, we make choices, and we reverse our choices, and then we tweak those choices. We do more thinking and deciding and acting and doubting. We live searching for the identity that will stick and with which we can say, ah, that's me. Now that's really me. Yeah, that's me. That's who I am. The time in our lives when this search for identity goes into the highest gear is adolescence. I have four grandchildren at that point right now. Everything is about us and who we are. Our clothes, our hair, our friends, the way we talk, what's cool, what's not cool. And thus we continue to search for who we are. Growing up in the 60s, the late 50s, and having this kind of hair was pretty difficult because the only people who had this kind of hair had black skin. And if you had my color skin, you needed to have straight hair. Some of you, a few of you, might be able to remember back that far. Trying to get my hair straight was quite a deal. And I grew up in Portland. I would get it straight. I would be so proud of it. I would walk outside, and the minute the mist hit it, <laughs> I most certainly did not fit in. But we continue to search for an identity for who we are. I suspect that everyone here has, as an adult, had an experience of feeling like a fraud. That is, you weren't necessarily trying to be phony, but you found that in fact you were in a given situation exactly what you didn't want to come across as. And you went, oh, and you can feel that disconnect inside. When we take some time to reflect on this, about how we can be someplace, not be who we think we are, we don't know who we are, we don't know how we belong, when we take time to reflect on this, we can see that at some point, we consciously put on a mask so others couldn't hurt us. But then over time, we know how to slide the mask on fast, or it just sits, comes on automatically, and that becomes the face that we present. We didn't know anything other than being the mask because when we have the mask on, it's okay. At least it's better. For example, if you grew up in an alcoholic or other type of dysfunctional home, you learned not to say certain things because it caused trouble if you said it, so you just kept your mouth shut. You learned over time not to just not say something, but you learned to not even see it anymore. It just became part of your life. And you probably learned to tell lies, to go on with the world you were constructing. Sometimes you just stayed quiet, and then all of a sudden you said something, and hey, it wasn't true, but who cares? It worked. It, it, you could fit in. Um, over time, you may no longer use your voice 
You just stay quiet, but every once in a while something pops out. You go, oops, or it just is there. Or you may have learned to be the life of the party and answer lots of things sarcastically. People liked you for this, and it became the face that you presented to the world. Now, as I talk about alcoholic and dysfunctional homes, one of the things I discovered when I was in private practice is that family systems, this whole idea of how does your, how does your family function, was just a, a great interest to me, and it was really the area in which I specialized. I would listen on an intake to people and I would hear them describing why they had come to see me and what was going on. And Then I would say in my best intake voice, uh, could you tell me about the drinking habits of your father? Oh. No, nobody drank in my house. My little brain, because drinks are always doing this, my little brain would go, doesn't want to admit the truth. Um, I would say, tell me about the drinking habits of your mother. Oh, Jane, we didn't have any alcohol in our family. We didn't even have beer in our house. I'd go. Of course, I didn't use that face. I had a face that I put. But what I came to learn was that when we grow up in a rigid religious home, we have the very same characteristics as you have from a dysfunctional or an alcoholic home because you learn that there are certain things that you should not say in order to stay on the inside. There are certain things you should say and you learn to play the game. And so that's what happens. <clears throat> it can get us in lots of different places. What happens is we end up settling for pretense if it buys us acceptance. And an authentic self, being who I really am, becomes an illusion we had in a younger life that at some point we simply just give up on. One of the, one of the still amazing things today is that as I sit with somebody in spiritual directing, and they sit in the chair in my office, and I have people who come in, they sit down, and it's three minutes into it, and the tears are running down their face. And uh, inevitably, they're going, I don't know what that's about. I'm not even talking about anything sad. But what happens is that it's the one place in their whole world where they are their authentic self. And it just, start, it just starts down their faces. But I want to say today that knowing my true self does not have to be an illusion we finally give up on. Because beneath the masks that we wear really lies a true self that has existed since God first loved us into existence, even before the foundation of the earth, as the scripture puts it. Thomas Merton said, finding that true and unique self is the problem on which all our existence our peace and our happiness rests. For when we find out our true self, we can find God, and when we find God, we can find our most authentic self. Our stories are all different. Some of them have things that are fairly alike, 
But uh, if you're like me um, and grew up in a deeply religious home, it seemed that the vision of a life of following Jesus reduced our personal uniqueness. And it was as if we were, if we were going to follow Christ, we would all look more and more like each other. There was almost cultic expectation that we would be like each other and act like each other. In my world, hey, that meant no makeup, it meant no earrings, it meant no pants, and my goodness, no dancing, and no hairstyling, and no movies. And most certainly, you were a registered Republican. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to find out who I was was difficult in a world where we identified by what we were not. I want to take just a couple minutes, and I want you, you can make notes if you want, or you can just sit here and think. I want you to think about back to those years that fortunately are over, those adolescent years, where you were forming an identity. And I want you to think about what did you try to be? What did you think you ought to be? And just flash back on that just for a couple minutes. If it helps, close your eyes, close your eyes. If it doesn't, if it helps to write notes, write notes. But I want you just to think about it just for a couple minutes. say that the loss of individuality, as I described from my childhood, because that's really what we did, we lost our individuality, has nothing to do with genuine Christian spirituality. I believe that type of thinking, that you need to be this or you can't be this, is about creating a self and not about receiving the gift of myself from my creator. Identity is never a creation. It is a discovery. It is a gift from God. Basil Pennington writes, being most deeply your unique self is something God desires because your true self is grounded in Christ. God created you in uniqueness and seeks to restore you to that uniqueness in Christ. Finding and living out your true self is fulfilling your identity. Now let me ask you a question. There's no particular right answer. I'm just trying to wake you up after eating this morning. <laughs> how do you think, or how might it be, that knowing your true self or not knowing your true self would impact your relationships. 
And of course, when you answer, you're not talking about yourself, you're talking about somebody else. Uh, how do, how, well, I've just very quickly shot at this. If you're not your true self, what does that have, how does that impact relationships? If you know your true self, what difference does it make in a relationship? Yes? I think that if you're not your true self, then they don't know who you are, you don't know who they are because they're just, the mirror is such that they're looking at you as you're showing yourself. So then they either reflect that back and say, oh, I like doing this, but I don't like doing that, or okay. they're well, not true. Okay, somebody else, how would you put if it? I, about the not true self, <clears throat> if, I, if I projecting different masks, I have to remember what mask I put on for that person or that group. Okay. And so it's that, that I have to think about who I am. Okay. Being. All right. Yes. There's just no acceptance because you haven't exposed who you really are, and so you don't, you're not accepted for who you are, and so there's no relationship, there's no depth. Okay, uh, that, that idea that if I'm not really me, then I always have the sense. If you really knew who I was, mm -hmm. you wouldn't like me. And so, what am I doing? What am I trying to get from you if I'm not really myself? And so I haven't really felt your acceptance. What am I trying to get from the other person always? Acceptance. acceptance. I'm trying to get you to accept me, to show me that you love me, to show me. And so, particularly in a marriage, you are, you are reading everything through the grid of, do you really like me? But the truth is, I may have never given me to you. I'm dependent on what you say to me for me to feel good about myself. Okay? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so aren't you just seeking identity from another person? Yes, I'm taking my identity from somebody else's acceptance or lack of acceptance. Yes. And it can always be changing then too. You're trying to figure out what they want. Yeah. Yes. But that really isn't conscious. Uh, we're, we're just running through life and then we're hurt because somebody said something and somebody didn't notice I did this and somebody put me down for this and blah 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 and so I just end up in a puddle or I end up in a big knot. Yes. So we're blaming them for not accepting us but we're not giving truth. Yes, you, you could parse it out that way but and some of us will blame the other person, some of the rest of us will say, it's me, nobody likes me. Or even my husband doesn't like who I am. And so it just ends up, and in a church, if you, if you have church leaders who don't know who they are and aren't able to be who they really are, then you see the damage that we have seen in churches over and over in the 20th and 21st century. <clears throat> Today, <sighs> that clock is my enemy. <laughs> I am simply not going to be able to unpack the whole idea behind double knowledge. It's a big concept. And, and although on one hand it's pretty simple, on another it gets complex because it's so very different than probably what most of us have experienced. I can only uh, expose you to the idea and hope that some of you will be, to, will be uh, caught by this and go on to explore it. I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm, I thought I was going to have time for you to write answers, but I learned in my last seminar, I don't have time. So, I'm going to just throw the question to you. What 
to, do you, what would you consider to be the most important thing for your existence and your well-being? And how do you think most or many Christ followers you know would answer that question? Give me just a minute to think about that. Can you repeat it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you consider to be the most important thing for your existence and well-being, and I did not ask you, what do you think is the right answer to this? I asked you, what do you think? If I were to follow you around and watch, what does your life show that you think is the most important thing for your existence and well-being? And how do you think most Christ followers you know would answer the question? I suspect that in a room like this, at a weekend sponsored by Salem Alliance Church, that the majority of you said something about knowing, loving, or serving God, or something about the church or relationships with other people. To suggest that knowing God plays an important part in your life wouldn't surprise me, wouldn't surprise anybody. But I suspect that to say that knowing yourself plays an equally important role may hit alarm bells in your hearts. And you may at this point go, whoo, yeah, she'd say something like that. You know what her background is. And uh, that's where they go. Yet, an understanding and an acknowledgement of the interdependence between knowing myself and knowing God is really not a 21st century idea that comes from the world of modern psychology. It's been around and established for a long time. On your handout, I have um, three quotes from names that you will probably recognize. John Calvin wrote, there is no deep knowing of God without a deep knowing of self, and no deep knowing of self without a deep knowing of God. Thomas Akempis said, a humble self-knowledge is a surer way to God than a search after deep learning. And Augustine prayed, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Christian spirituality isn't a fire escape from hell, but it involves a self that is changed only when God and self are deeply known. I'm not a theologian by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm not aware of a serious theological argument with this ancient Christian understanding that we need both of these. What I see and what I experience is a truth that has largely been ignored and overlooked by the contemporary church. Within the church, we have focused on knowing about God. And if somebody was troubled about themselves, we sent them to the world of psychology. The result has been tragic. Relationships have been damaged and destroyed, whether in families or in churches. Ministries have been damaged and wiped out because the leader did not have eyes or ears to see themselves. Leaving the self 
out of our Christian spirituality leaves us with a spirituality that is not grounded in experience, but just up here. And therefore, it's a, it is a spirituality that is not grounded in reality. David Benner, the author of the book, The Gift of Being Yourself, writes, Focusing on God while failing to know ourselves deeply may produce an external form of piety, but it will always leave a gap between appearance and reality. This is dangerous to the soul of anyone, and to spiritual leaders it can also be disastrous for those they lead. Another way to talk about knowing myself is to ask myself how my inside and my outside match or don't match. What's going on out here? What's going on here? How, how often do those go, are they, those in different directions? Is the self I show the world one I have crafted for acceptance to fit in or to be what I think I ought to be? Is it actually a false self? that thus resulting in a vast chasm between what I project and what I really am. Now to make it even more complex, the chasm and the inner experience of my life may be outside of my awareness. I, I, I might not even realize it. I, I, I may have no idea that that's true. I may simply just not see this reality. Jesus said, watch out, watch out for blind people leading blind people. Because they're both blind and they're both going to fall down. They're going to fall in the pit. When we are blind to our real self, we will live a lie that grows a plant with roots deep down into the soil of self-ignorance. And a plant with roots into the soil of self-ignorance is a life that does not know peace or rest and does not do what that life was intended to do. But in the long run, what does it matter? What if I can't see myself? What if I'm ignorant of myself? And I'll tell you why this matters to me and thus why I chose this topic on a weekend that's about relationships. It's like, is this really about relationships? Yes, this is about relationships with me and with God. And with all the other people in my life. Jesus said that his followers were, he didn't say, he, this is what his followers are when his life is growing in us. We are the salt in a world that is tasteless. He said his followers were light in a dark world. I don't know if you flip the news on, but when the news comes on, we have evidence on a 24-hour basis that we live in a world that tastes bad and that is really dark. Without salt, our world tastes so bad you can hardly swallow it. Without light, it's so dark you simply stumble over and over and finally give up and sit down and just die in a corner in a dark room. Christ followers who know the Father are the hope of the world, not because we're out there just evangelizing, telling people this, telling people that, because our very lives are salt and light in the world. I want us to be what we were created to be, 
salt and light and hope and love. That is a transformed life that does that. Many of us are not short on knowledge about either ourselves or about God. Many of us have read and studied about God and about ourselves. But it doesn't do us any good unless it is what I will call transformational knowing. That is, knowledge that changes us. Having knowledge about God is no more transformational than knowledge about love. Knowledge about marriage is not transformational unless it's changing us. We may know that God is a forgiving God, but if we haven't experienced forgiveness in relationship to a significant failure, it's probably more accurate to say we believe God is forgiving because we don't really know it as experiential truth. I suspect that many of you are like me. I had always taken safe, rather inconsequential sins, if you can call them that, to God for forgiveness. Never having faced the reality of my inner world to God or to myself. And when the day came when I had to look inside, it changed my life completely. I no longer believed it. I know that God is forgiving. I want to illustrate how this works by considering a character from the New Testament, Peter. You may recall that Jesus said that Peter was the rock on whom he would build the church. And yet the rock was very crumbly. In fact, it seems that none of the disciples showed what we would call a mature understanding of either themselves or of God during the three years they spent with Jesus. So what I want to do <coughs> is <coughs> I want you to help me reconstruct some of these situations in Peter's life. This is on your handout. Or these little pieces are on there. And um, I want you to think back to when Jesus... I invited Peter to be what today we call his disciples. Do you know how it started? How does the story start? Anybody know? Okay, it backs up farther than that. His brother. Okay, his brother is Andrew. And what's happened between Andrew and Jesus? He's realized he's the Messiah. Okay, but Jesus has asked Andrew. To be, a, to be a follower, okay? And Andrew has decided that this is the Messiah. And Andrew goes to his brother, Peter, and says, I have found the Messiah. Come, I want you to meet him. So Peter goes along, he meets Jesus, and what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, follow me. And so what does Peter do? He what? He drops his net. his net, his fishing net. He dumps everything, and he goes after him. Okay, now let's just take this little incident. And I want you to look, and we're going to ask a couple questions. What can we assume at this point that Peter might know about himself? And what might he know about Jesus or God at this point? Okay, 
You get to play shrink. Okay? What do you think Peter knew about himself at this point? What do you think he might have known? He was a good fisherman. Okay, he might have known that. All right. He's a rough and tumble, maybe cursing, coarse kind of guy. Okay, he might know that. Mm -hmm. He needed something. Okay, he, because what does he know about himself? What's he looking for? He's, He's looking for the Messiah. Why is he looking for the Messiah? Yeah, but what's the reality that he's living in? What? Political. Yes, there's political unrest. The Romans are in charge. Hey, this was bad news. They lived under the Romans. And he was daring to hope that maybe the Messiah was here. Because in his head, if the Messiah comes, the Romans are gone. Right? Okay, so what he is daring to hope is that maybe this really is the Messiah. I suspect he knows that he's pretty impulsive. Huh, I just dumped my career. Uh, I'm just going after this guy that I've only known for 10 minutes. And I'm going to go with him. I suspect he might have been able to admit that he had a temper. Um, I suspect, um, and he, uh, as far as what he knows about Jesus, it's pretty much hope, and it's wrapped up in what Andrew has told him. Okay? All right. Now, let's go ahead. Let's go to the next little situation. And we've got, let's fast forward to Peter encountering Jesus walking on the water. Let's reconstruct that situation. How does that happen? Okay, you remember, this, you remember some of you that know the story. Where is Peter? He's in the boat. And he's, and, yes, and there's a storm. Now, this is a seasoned fisherman, so he knows how to handle storms. But they are freaked because this is the really bad one. And what does he see? He sees an apparition. He sees this something out there on the water. And what does Peter think? He looks and he says, it's Jesus. Right? So what does Peter, what's Peter say? Hey, if it's you, call me to walk out on the water with you. <laughs> okay. And so then what happens? Peter gets out. He gets out on the water. He freaks, and he falls in the water. And Jesus gets him out, sticks him in the boat, and they're all okay. Okay, now, what does Peter know about himself now? What does he know about Jesus? He's a daughter. He doubts. He doubts? He knows what? Jesus will rescue him. He looks at this and he goes, I did that thing that I do. Impulsively, I got out on the water. And you know what? He didn't leave me. He took care of me. Okay. He's probably somebody I can trust. And he didn't shame me for it. He didn't say, hey, when we get back on shore, I want to talk to you about that stupid action. <laughs> uh, what does he know about himself? He knows something about fear. I suspect that fishermen don't admit to each other that they're afraid. I suspect you just put it down, and if you're a good guy, you know how to get take care of this and get your boat back in. He... 
At this point, I don't think Peter has come to grips with his own fear at all. Or, what else doesn't, hasn't he come to grips with? What kind of guy says, if it's really you, call me and I'll walk out on the water to you. What kind of guy does that? I mean, to take it, what kind of guy does that? Hey, come on, what do we call those people? Dreamers. They're dreamers and they're braggarts. Okay, right? Right. Hey, I can do it. Uh, just call me and I'll be out there. Peter hasn't quite got it down yet. He doesn't know himself very well, does he? Uh, maybe he can begin to admit his deep fear. He might refer to his impulsiveness that actually increases his trust in Christ. Uh, but um, I don't think he understands his pride. Now, jump three more years ahead to Jesus washing the, the disciples' feet just before he's getting ready to die. Okay, let's reconstruct that scene. What happens there? What? Okay, they've had dinner, and Jesus says, I'm going to wash your feet. Okay? So what does Peter say? No, not me, not me. And again, what... What trait of his are we watching? Pride. Why is it pride? I mean, it looks like what this is a mask. It looks like, oh, you are so wonderful. I couldn't have you do that for me. Right? But it really is pride. Because what can't Peter do? Yeah, but Peter doesn't know how to accept a gift, yeah. right? He doesn't know how to take a gift. He wants to be the one that does all the giving because then, I said, these are 21st century politicians that we just watched a long time ago. He wants to tweak it. He wants to turn it so that it was, do you know we had our feet washed, but Peter didn't let them wash his feet. Man, he is really great. He's really spiritual. But... <laughs> That's not, what he didn't see is he can't see himself at all here. He can't see himself. And then, in this same situation, Jesus says that Peter's going to deny him. And what does Peter say? No way. No way. I think that for Peter, he apparently found it easier to think Jesus was wrong the Messiah? <laughs> he thought it was easier to accuse the Messiah of being wrong than that he would deny Jesus. He does not have an accurate picture of himself at all. And this gives the evidence that he has not encountered his pride or his deepest fears. Now, after the, after the denial of Jesus, what does he know about himself? Because that's what he does. He denies, he denies he even knew Jesus. He's probably self-absorbed. In regret, in anguish, and in shame. In a flash, he sees his lack of courage, his lack of backbone, his lack of loyalty, and his deep fears of what other people are going to think. And he was willing to ditch his friend in order to protect his own skin. I wonder if in that moment he realized that it was pride that made him boast he, would, he wouldn't leave Jesus. 
that it was pride that made him not believe Jesus would die. He didn't want to be guilty of having believed this was the Messiah and then find out that he wasn't. My guess is that at this point he hates himself. We have one more, one more thing that happens here that I want to quickly do before I pull this together. What about Peter's knowing of himself and of Jesus after he encounters the risen Christ? I'm sure you've heard this before, but every time I read it, it grabs me. That when Jesus told the first disciples, he said, tell the disciples, I will meet them, and tell Peter too. Those words were reassurance that Peter could say, he didn't hold it against me. He didn't even say, and tell Peter, the jerk, that all he can come to because I'm forgiven. He doesn't do that. And um, so um, we have the situation that, uh, well, let me grab one more that I, I forgot to see my notes here. He encounters the risen Christ on the seashore. They've been out fishing because they've gone back to fishing because there is anything to this Messiah thing. He's dead. And they're out fishing. They've fished all night. They haven't got anything. And they're there, and there's a man there that they don't recognize. And he says to them, put your, put your net on the other side. And they put the net on the other side, pull it up, and the net is full. And Peter looks, and he realizes that's Jesus. He's alive. And he now knows something about himself, and he knows something about Jesus. What's he know now? What does he know now? He's God and he is not. Okay. This really is the Messiah. He knows it experientially. He's been there. He's experienced it. And he knows. He doesn't believe anymore that Jesus is forgiving. He knows it. He absolutely knows it. What he had known from observation of others, he now knows personally. The weaving of what we know of ourselves and what we know of God illustrates how the genuine knowing of ourselves and of God happens. Peter could not know Jesus apart from knowing himself in relationship to God. He could not know himself until Jesus showed himself to him. But in seeing himself, he also came to truly know Jesus, not just know about him or be able to talk in town about maybe he's the Messiah. Deep and true knowing of God and knowing of self always develop together and interactively. And the result of the interaction is a transformation, a change of ourself that I believe is at the core of Christian spirituality. And so, in conclusion, and this hour was shorter than the last one. <laughs> I want to suggest something to you that here we are on the first Saturday of Lent, and I don't know whether you observe Lent or not, it's a very meaningful time to me and I would really encourage you to use these six weeks to say, I want to know Jesus. I want to find out about him. So I'm going to give, I'm going to give you an exercise, we're going to do it right here, and uh, I am going to, um, I'm, going to add, I'm going to read a passage from the book of Mark, from the very beginning of Mark. 
I didn't go through to find a passage, oh, I think this will get them. No, I just, just started with the life of Christ and I read it from the book of Mark. I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to ask, not that you try to figure out what it's saying to you. I want you to watch Jesus. I want you to make a video in your head. Our heads have the ability to do that. We, can we have a gift of imagination. I want you to watch Jesus in this little tiny clip from the beginning of Mark. I'm going to read it in one translation. Then I'm going to give us just a very short time of silence. I'm going to read it from another translation. Do the same thing, and I'm going to read it a third time. And I want you to just watch Jesus. Don't try to figure out what does this mean. I just want you to watch Jesus. Because knowing somebody is knowing them really. It was in those days that Jesus arrived from the Galilean village of Nazareth. And he was baptized by John in the Jordan. All at once, as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens split open and the Spirit coming down upon him like a dove. A voice came out of heaven saying, You are my dearly beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then the Spirit sent him out at once into the desert. And there he remained for forty days while Satan tempted him. During this time, no one was with him but wild animals. And only the angels were there to care for him. Reading again from a different translation. Not long afterward, Jesus came from Nazareth in the province of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As soon as Jesus came up out of the water, he saw heaven opening and the Spirit coming down on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my own dear son. I am pleased with you. At once, the Spirit made him go into the desert where he stayed 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Wild animals were there also, but angels came and helped him. And a third time. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, John saw the heavens torn open and the spirit like a dove descending on Jesus. And a voice came out of heaven saying, You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased and delighted. Immediately the Holy Spirit forced him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days being tempted to do evil by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels ministered continually to him. I encourage you, over the next six weeks, to try knowing Jesus by watching the video 
that you probably have several copies of in your house. Just read a small passage, sit back, and look at it, and see who this Jesus is. I think that in our 21st century church culture, many of us have not allowed or even known how to deepen our initial introduction to Jesus into a deep, intimate knowing. We talk about God and a relationship with him, and yet we know him less than many of our casual relationships and acquaintances. We have settled for knowing about him, and the relationship is remarkably superficial. If that's true for you, don't let yourself get sucked into a guilt hole. Hear God's call to an ongoing personal encounter, not as a reprimand, but as an invitation. It's an invitation to step out of the safety of the little boat that you've built for yourself and meet Jesus in the storms of reality, of your real life. It's an invitation to personal knowing and an invitation to truly know your Creator. Thanks for coming today.